This is The Process. I'm Jude Brewer. Fair warning, this story involves child abuse. During college, I worked at a video rental store called Blockbuster. Employees got 10 free rentals a week, so theoretically I could watch 500 movies a year for free. This was before any streaming. Netflix was still a DVD mailer service. Sony Blu-ray had just declared their victory over Microsoft's HD DVD. Our regulars were asking us if we were worried about the red box across the parking lot. I didn't really care about any of that. When I wasn't working at Blockbuster, I was teaching myself how a movie is made. At the same time, I was just starting therapy. I think there's a reason why we get into careers that we get into. You know, and I'm not just like making a generalization, but I'm sure that there's a lot of fighters out there that had a really hard childhood. That's Kimberly Shannon Murphy. She's Hollywood's go-to stunt double for premier silver screen actresses. If you've seen a movie or a TV show made in the last 20 years, chances are you've seen Kimberly without even knowing it. We did Across the Universe on the weekends because it was like these mass scenes in New York. And so I would work Monday through Friday on Super Ex-Girlfriend. And then on the weekends, I did Across the Universe just for a few weeks in a row. Across the Universe, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, Spider-Man 3, I Am Legend, Star Trek, Zombieland, Night and Day, Men in Black 3, Captain America, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Top Gun Maverick. And these are just the movies that I expect most people to recognize. That was my first time working with all of the New York stunt community. I was just a part of the riot scenes. So all the riot scenes that you saw when they were all rioting, I was in there. Like, I think I did a stair fall in one of the scenes. Before meeting Kimberly, I had unknowingly seen her on screen more than 40 times. And in the same way that my pursuits with writing and film wound up playing pivotal roles in my own therapy and recovery from abuse, Kimberly's career would lead her to uncovering layers of herself that might have otherwise remained calloused over and unhealed. All of which she has written about in her memoir, Glimmer, a story of survival, hope, and healing. Yeah, it just means so much to me that you wrote it and then you actually want to put yourself through talking about all of this over and over and over and over and over. Thanks, Jude. <laughs> yeah, and that's how it feels sometimes. I'm like, okay. Yeah. What's the significance of somebody writing about something that is difficult, like a traumatic experience, mm. for everyone else who doesn't have thousands of people who will listen to them? I hope that when they share their experience that I could use what they say and not necessarily have to have that same following for it to apply to my life. I think if anyone has the platform to reach all of those people, they are the people that need to be giving us the information that we can't get anywhere else. A lot of the characters that we see or, or imagine, they're really two persona. It's hard to relate to celebrities because they have so much money. They're a, a person themselves and then they're the person they portray. I understand where they're coming from, but they don't really go through like what we go through. People struggling for like to make ends meet. It's like science fiction. You're describing something that really isn't there in the mind's eye of the observer. Sometimes people with a large platform, it looks like their life is awesome all the time and sort of being able to relate to the fact that we all struggle. You're dying, but you don't have to cooperate so enthusiastically with the process. With the process. So I'm going back through the book. I was going back through it last night um, and then back through this morning. And I realized so much about reading it. I had to, um, I mean, I like to go through it real 
intuitively. I just sort of dog-eared pages, and then I waited until the whole thing was finished. Then I went back through and underlined and was like, what was it about this page that spoke to me? And it also took me probably about three or four days afterward, after I messaged you and said, oh, I finished it, loved it. I had to kind of really live with it in my body because it brought up it brought up a lot of personal stuff for me. Um, it brought up a lot of personal stuff for very close friends of mine, you know, I've known over the years. And I haven't really kept up with all of the interviews or things you've done elsewhere on this. So I, but I imagine I, you know, uh, you're getting into uh, very easily the weeds with some, I mean, it, you're just hitting really head on with very dark subject matter in a way that I think a lot of people may uh, shy away from with writing and it may, it comes across so, so touching and so personally, it's very carefully, carefully written. So I wanted to just start off saying like, thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's very beautifully told. And I know I've known a few people in my life that, man, if I could have given this to them at the right time, it would have made uh, their journey a lot easier. That means a lot. Thank you. Um, so before we get into the heavy stuff, I want to get into stunts. I want to get into stunts. I'm already you. crying, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but your book made me cry like several times. No, throughout, I so. think everything you're saying is literally the reason that I wrote this. So just from somebody who understands like where I'm coming from, it always means, not that it means so much more, but for people that have had similar experiences that I have to feel that way about my story and about my book means the world to me. It's literally the reason I wrote it. So anyway. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's the year 2002. Kimberly is 25 years old and she and her roommates have been blockbuster binging female action thrillers. Gina Davis in The Long Kiss Goodnight, Angelina Jolie in Lara Croft Tomb Raider, Pam Greer in Jackie Brown. Watching women defy the rules and refuse to be used makes her arm hair stand up. It makes her want to fight back too. You know, it's like that little piece of something that gives you this feeling of like, I can do that too, even though it's different than what I was going through. At this point, Kimberly hasn't even thought of what it's like to be a stunt woman. She's found her home in a dance club, spent her nights out of her head on ecstasy, got accepted into the Ailey School for Dance, and then suddenly gets into a car wreck. Recovering from the wreck opens a portal. It gets her some much needed attention from her mom and dad. It also gets her back into therapy for issues involving her family that she had confronted before. But more on that later. Since the wreck, Kimberly learns that the Ailey Dance School has filled her spot. And at the dance club she calls home, there's a girl who strips at a gentleman's club in Midtown, making $400 a night in tips. So Kimberly swallows her fear, ignoring the memories of trauma linked to those dark family secrets that have lied dormant in her body up to this point, and goes down into the basement of the strip club with a dozen other girls to audition. In her words, like cattle down a chute and into a pen. I mean, that's how I was brought up. I don't know about you, but I was brought up that way. My dad was very much like, you know, suck it up, you're fine, move on type of thing, which is, which I think is ironic because it probably helped me in a backwards way through a lot of things. But on this end of my life, it made me, you know, everything caught up with me. And I now I'm dealing with it in such a late part of my life where I feel like 
if I was listened to or things were accepted as they were when I was younger, I could have got, you know, sort of healed through things a lot earlier than I did. She doesn't make the cut. She's not in a dance school. She won't be working at the gentleman's club. And now she's watching box office thrillers with her friends. Another portal has opened. The kind of portal that opens when you don't realize what you're seeking out is the key to something larger within you. We didn't have a lot of female action movies happening. They were very few and far in between. And I feel like it's the same way that we were sort of handling trauma back then as well. There's a lot more female lead jobs than there was before. I think it was very male dominated. Now we know a lot more about the stunt person profession. When it was male dominated, you didn't hear about these people at all. Ever, almost ever. I didn't know half the jobs that are involved in that. So I think it's great when like, those people get to tell their story because it's not something we even know about. And I feel like we've gotten this permission to feel our feelings. At that time in my life, I was really searching for that. Can you describe the job of a stunt performer in a film? I think what a stunt person does in a film is they perform stunts for the film. (laughs) (laughs) They do the stuff that is unsafe. Take on risk that other people are unwilling to take on. They're like professional athletes that make uh, actors look like they can do things that the actors can't do. Doing things that a normal person wouldn't want to do. They preserve Tom Cruise. They synthesize a real-life accident or scenario. Just like an actor or actress's double. So they always have a double to do something that's potentially dangerous. That would be dangerous. Somebody who fills in for the actor and does all the dangerous things. (laughs) You were in the FX show Rescue Me. What was your role there? I can't remember. Oh, God, it was so long ago. Um, (laughs) Terrible, I know. I think I had a part. Yeah. It was only one episode. I think I said a few words and I died or something. I'm not sure. It's usually my MO. I say a few words and I'll get killed in some horrible way. Say a few words. I'm out. I'm here to just perish. Again, I think that's what I think I deserve. I deserve to say a few words and get killed. What would be like some of the dangerous things that they do? I think the classic one is they jump off the building and then like they perfectly somehow fall like on their back. Car chase scene where like a car is flipping over, so they might be the driver. How do they even do that? That's incredible. Car driving, jumping off buildings. Anything martial arts based, swords falling down a flight of stairs. Falling off of buildings. Things that occur on screen where you don't have a readily available CGI. I would say anything that's horse based. Falling off a horse. That would be, I don't think actors do that stuff. I pictured falling off a building. A movie stunt could be many things. Could be fighting another person, falling from a great height, getting dragged or playing out a car crash. But getting hurt is not necessarily their job. As CareerExplorer.com phrases it, stunt performers are responsible for assessing the risks involved in a stunt and taking appropriate safety measures to ensure that the stunt is performed safely. Yeah, so usually if you get really badly hurt in a job, you're kind of done. Splinter by splinter, the medic tweezes candy glass from my face. I don't mind the stinging. I don't flinch. My heart is beating slowly now. My body is contained in the tight skin of my motion capture suit. That's Caitlin Olson, whose voice you might recognize from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, or The Mick, both projects that Kimberly has been Caitlin's stunt double for. Caitlin is reading from Kimberly's memoir. All around me in the cavernous warehouse where we're filming I Am Legend, people are freaking out. The stunt coordinator is huddled with the rigging crew in charge of my descender. 
The first AD crouches at my feet. Oh, man. oh my God, are you sure you're okay? Ten minutes ago, I did a high fall through a glass window. We'd done everything right, just like in rehearsals, which went perfectly. But this time, my wire didn't stop me five feet above the ground like it was supposed to. I flew past my end mark, landing face first in a pile of broken shards. The stunt coordinator is insisting that I go to the ER, but I shake my head and repeat calmly so they will take me seriously. No, I am not going to the hospital. I want to do it again. In stunts, we sort of pride ourselves, sickingly so in a way, that if we get hurt, we don't say anything to anybody and we just sort of go home and then we deal with it on the other side of things. We do the stunt three more times. I hear, we got that, cut, print, that's lunch. Quietly, I approach the stunt coordinator and ask if it's okay to get stitched up now. Uh, yeah, he says, I've been trying to get you to go all day. Whether we're on a film for a long time or we just work that one day and we had a big stunt and we get hurt, unless it's really visible to everyone, we broke a limb or something like that, we don't really say it or talk about it. It's starting to change now. The younger generation is starting to speak up and be more sort of out there with like, hey, this hurts or whatever. We didn't do that back then. Just like, it was a sort of pride of us just kind of going to work, getting hurt, dealing with it and not saying anything. It's like part of our job or something. A double on the last film I worked on got taken away in an ambulance and I was jealous. I have not yet grasped how completely fucked up that is. When I really started doing the work on myself and realizing that I spent my entire life sort of self-harming in some way, whether it was through bulimia or cutting or getting into stunt work and just kind of not really caring if I got hurt or not. Pain is part of the deal. Why fight it? Sometimes I hope for it. And I never wanted to get hurt to the point of like not being able to work, but hurt to the point of where people were like, are you okay? Are you okay? Because I think subconsciously I needed that because I wasn't getting it from the people that I thought loved me. Three years into my career as a stunt woman, I thought I was over wanting to get hurt on the job so I could feel the power high of handling it. I thought I'd transcended the inner programming of my past. I think there's a reason why we get into careers that we get into. You know, and I'm not just like making a generalization, but I'm sure that there's a lot of fighters out there that had a really hard childhood. Matter of fact, I know there's a lot of fighters out there that have had a really hard childhood. I thought being successful at work meant I was okay now. You don't step into the octagon and... and get your ass kicked or try to kick someone's ass if you haven't had some stuff in your life. I'm not saying that goes for everybody, but I, I do feel like it goes for some people. I find myself returning to the set that evening. My skin is a sunset of bruises. My right eye is nearly swollen shut and stitches zigzag across my face. Kimberly, what are you doing here? Everyone asks. Just making sure you don't need me, I say, enjoying the alarm in their voices. It hits me with thudding obviousness that I'm lying. I'm fully aware that my work is done for the day. I've come back to set because the connective tissue between my present and my past is poking through again. You know, and you don't show up at work and want to get hit by a car unless you've had some stuff in your life. Let's rewind. Back to before she discovered stunt work, before the strip club audition, before she loses her spot at the dance school. Another car crashes into her driver's side door. Metal crunches into her hip glass raining everywhere. Eight hours and dozens of stitches later, Kimberly's dad is carrying her from his truck into his house. She feels her body melting into his strong arms. He's taking care of me. 
the way I always wanted. In the same way that eventually stunt work would open a portal, creating the kinds of wounds that people could actually see, showing her concern, asking if she was all right, the car wreck creates injuries for her parents to notice. Her father picks her up from the hospital, while her mother calls her every day after the accident. Kimberly is being shown concern by two individuals she's longed to feel seen by for 25 years. As you might remember Kimberly describing, her father is very much like, suck it up, you're fine, and move on when it comes to pain, because he was unwilling to talk about his own pain. Dad's greatest pride is being a Marine, but he's mysterious about the war. What stories he does tell a few beers in are about the exciting parts. His job as a minesweeper was to go ahead of his team as they searched hostile territory for explosives and landmines. I come from a family of under-the-carpet sweepers, I like to call them. (laughs) But I know it was bad. I know he slept with his gun, waiting for them to come for him. And I know he still carries that fear. I've poked him awake on the TV room floor, cops blasting, and seen it up close. For the split second before he realizes I'm his daughter, Dad thinks I'm the enemy. In that split second, we're afraid, together. My dad was in a lot of pain. I think he had a really hard childhood. I mean, you don't sign up for the Marine Corps to go to war at 18 if you're not trying to run from something. Her father didn't always run, not when it came to helping his younger brother, Mike, taking him to a methadone clinic every morning, giving him jobs here and there, until eventually Mike died of a heroin overdose. Since it happened, Dad is more restless than ever. Like if he stops moving, he might trigger a mine and explode. I wish he would just cry. While her father was hurting from Mike's death, Kimberly was being abused by a family member. She was eight years old, quietly suffering from her own dark secret since she had turned six, all while absorbing her father's restlessness and unresolved war trauma. I took everything in as a child, so I was very aware and empathetic, if you might say, where they say that kids that are that way, it's because you've had to read adults your whole life and figure out what mood they were in so that you could behave a certain way to make sure that you don't upset them. At only eight years old, Kimberly was discovering what set her apart from the rest of the family. We show up as in generations, as like cycle breakers, as truth tellers, as people that are going to sort of stand up against everything the family believes in and speak the truth, which is who I have always been since I was young. I always would get confused about things or my dad's drinking and and just say it. Where my sisters were terrified, I have more than one sister, but in the book it reads as one sister. Their story was not mine to tell and it wasn't my goal to tell anyone's story but my own. Thing is, the story that Kimberly's telling didn't begin when she was eight or when she was six. The story was much older than her, a version of it being passed down from her mother and her aunt, Pat, and beginning with her grandfather, who she knew as Grandpapa. Grandpapa shared a special bond with Kimberly's father. They were both war veterans. Grandpapa was a fighter pilot in World War II, But what her father didn't know, and what he refused to believe when Kimberly finally told him when she was 14, going on 15, after Grandpapa had passed away, was that she had been sexually abused by him. Grandpapa was a pedophile. Now for the purposes of this show, we won't be getting into specifics. Kimberly's book is written with immense sensitivity and was carefully put together to depict a child's point of view, 
which everyone should read to get a real understanding of how this trauma plays out. The thing about incest. It messes with your mind and makes you forget who you are, who you were, and what you were meant for in this world. You can spend your whole life trying to imagine, who would I be if they'd never put their hands on me? Kimberly told her mother first. She found out she was not alone. Her mother shared the same secret. So did her Aunt Pat, who had spoken up to their mother years before. Grandpapa had hurt his own daughters. And years later, he would hurt Kimberly. Over and over and over. I think when we grow up in a world where we're being so hurt and abused, and when I say that, I don't only mean my sexual abuse, I mean my household at home. You know, that's something that I really had to look at as I wrote this book. That, of course, you know, the sexual abuse was this massive thing that was happening to me, right? That was so horrific. So when I came to terms with it and started having my memories. That's where I always went. Like, I can't believe he did this to me. But I never really visited what was going on in my own house and how the secrets were being kept and how we weren't allowed to talk about things and how my dad's drinking was horrible and my mom's disconnection was even worse. You know, so many things that were happening in, at home that were abusive to me. So no matter where I went, nothing was healthy. Kimberly went to therapy with her mother. She also went to therapy alone. It wouldn't be until many years later, after Kimberly turned 45, when she would have a conversation over Zoom with Dr. Gaber Matei, a physician and author with a groundbreaking take on trauma. During our powerful conversation, Dr. Matei said something I'd never heard in all my years of therapy, that my deepest trauma was not my abuse. Before you were sexually abused, he told me, you were cut off from adults and nurturing. The abuser knows with a laser light who they can perpetrate on. They sense when a child has a lack of protection. That does not mean the child wants it, deserves it, or in any way invites it. It means the bully can always sense the vulnerability of the victim. That lack of protection from your parents was what allowed the whole thing to happen, and that was your primary trauma. 30 years into therapy, with almost 20 years as a stunt woman, what struck Kimberly was that she was already in the process of writing her book, but she was also raising her own daughter, who was only seven, carefree and protected. Kimberly had never known safety at that age. It wasn't sort of a prevalent conversation that we were really having like we are today and now, where people, I feel like, feel more comfortable to come forward and tell their story and speak their truth because we sort of have this you know, line of doctors that are giving us this sense of, hey, this is actually a really real thing. And this is something that if this happened to you as a child, this is how it affects your nervous system. This is how it manifests itself in your body. And this is what happens in your adult life because of what happened in your child life. In her child life, as Dr. Matei had said, her primary trauma was a lack of safety. Which brings us back to the definition of a stunt performer's job. It's not about breaking the body and being more capable of recovering from injury. It's about assessing the risks involved in a stunt and taking appropriate safety measures to ensure that the stunt is performed safely. Her career had become all about safety, which is why three years into her career, when she took that big fall on the set of I Am Legend, landing her onto a gurney in Brooklyn ER, she realized it was time to go back to therapy. It's not easy. 
I look at my daughter and I'm like, if I don't make a different choice, if I don't keep making a different choice, you're going to suffer the way I suffered just in a different way, not with the abuse, but just with the trauma, because it's going to come out on her in some way if I don't do the work. And I think that I do look at my parents now and I am holding them accountable for what they didn't do for me or give me. And that is continuing into my life now, which is which is a bummer, you know? The awful truth that Kimberly's speaking to here is what many abuse survivors will experience. Some of the common fears and reasons why survivors keep silent are the following. Fear of retaliation or punishment from their perpetrator, fear of victim blaming, fear that they won't be believed, fear that they will have no support or a place to turn for help, fear of being shunned, being conditioned by the perpetrator to keep silent, or blaming themselves for the sexual assault. These fears are not unfounded either. Kimberly had confronted her family more than once, even her grandmother, and the responses she got were nothing short of disappointing and painful. These scenes of the book are frankly some of the most heartbreaking. But Kimberly continued therapy. She began compiling her journals into a book, speaking with doctors, doing research, and when she found out her book had a real shot of being published, she contacted her family. I needed to call like all the people and just make sure they were okay. And I mean, I spent probably a week just calling each sister and calling my dad and calling my aunts. And, and they all had their own opinion and it wasn't a nice one. And none of it was supportive and none of it was, you know, Kim, you deserve to tell your story. You deserve to, you know, I support you, even though it's not something that I, I would do or that I really want out in the world. I get it. You know, it was like, you're going to ruin everyone's life. That's what it was. But the process of writing her book was not accomplished alone. Therapy had given her a good foundation, and Kimberly had been writing down her secrets in a journal since she was a teenager. As she entered her 30s and continued therapy, her career as a stunt woman flourished. When I got older and things started going well for me, or I, you know, I would get this job or I would get this thing that anybody would be ecstatic about, I would have the moment of being ecstatic about it. And then I would have the bigger moment of, you don't deserve this. You're not worthy of this, my subconscious talking. So let's do something to mess it up, you know, because that's what makes sense to you. And that's what feels comfortable. And so I need to be in that space because that's where I've always lived. And I don't know what it's like to live in this new space. If the subconscious is telling you, you're not worthy, you don't deserve this then what you have to do is prove your subconscious wrong. As I said before, the process of writing her book was not accomplished alone. Her career as a stunt woman would introduce two very influential people into her life, her close friend Cameron and her future husband Casey. These were people she could share her journals with, people who could read the words of her teenage self and then respond with compassion. But that doesn't mean she was fully ready to accept the compassion that was being offered. You know, until we really start doing the work and healing, which, you know, is such a big word and I've learned is a, a bigger word than I thought, we do sort of live in this space where we really subconsciously think that we deserve to not be happy because we've never had happiness. So what does that look like and what does that feel like and how do I accept it into my life? There's that phrase, we don't choose our family, but in the end, we do. 
We get to choose the people who show up for us repeatedly without question. You know, I've detached from my whole family. You know, as sad as it is, I'm really proud of the fact that my daughter can fully live in her authentic self and that she doesn't have to be around people that are really toxic and that I have chosen to keep her away from that and that I have chosen to give her a better life. And she doesn't feel that way right now, but she will eventually. You know, right now I've taken her away from her cousins, but I know that it's so much of a bigger picture that's gonna give her so much more of sense of herself. Kimberly continues to do her stunt work. She engages with her audience on Instagram, getting into all sorts of talks with doctors and experts in psychology. And I'm sure if you comment on something, she will probably reply back to you. She is a very good uh, light and source to have in this life. So now we arrive at our final segment, where I'll have Kimberly unknowingly read the words of Leonard Cohen. You're dying, but you don't have to cooperate so enthusiastically with the process. To me, it sort of means you're in so much pain and you don't have to go along with it so happily like you deserve it. Like that you 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 are deserving of stepping back and realizing that you don't you're not defined by this pain and that your life is so much bigger than what you think defines you right now. What would the process be for you? Healing. Because if you don't heal, something inside of you dies, whether you die because you get addicted or you know, or you go to the extreme, or you're just killing off parts of you so that you can survive and live your life, but you're not fully living it anyway. So which process are you gonna pick? The process of dying or the process of healing? Connection, I think um, reading about someone else's story can obviously bring up things from your own life and help you feel more connected to the human experience. How it affects us culturally, does it make us a more caring or sympathetic, you know, uh, more inclined to take care of each other? Yeah, it's just that relational thing that like, oh, I'm not alone in this. Other people that seem like they've got their shit together also struggle. People's ex difficult experiences help us, inspire us to deal with our own difficult experiences in our everyday life. Like, it may not be the same, but, you know, it still gives us hope that, hey, someone else went through trauma and they came out and they are able to talk about it. Maybe I shouldn't give up. Maybe I should continue. And it's nice to see someone that actually did it and how it went for them. I think it's even more important for a female stunt performer to share her story because, I mean, it's not a very common job. Right. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Aunt Pat and Natasha Lee. If you are experiencing sexual assault, you do not have to suffer alone. You can talk to someone for confidential 24-7 support by calling 1-800-656-4673. And for the 24-7 child abuse hotline, call 1-800-4-CHILD. That's 1-800-422-4453. These numbers are also listed in the show notes. If you know someone who is experiencing abuse, or if you suspect abuse, please don't wait. Thank you to Holly for providing audiobook excerpts from Kimberly's book, which is titled Glimmer, a story of survival, hope, and healing. Music in this episode was created by John Fio. 